We brought him into the hospital, and of course, he was very upset. We practically had to shackle him to get him into the hospital. And I thought certainly that he had one of these midlife crises. He was so uh, depressed. And after he was in a short time, they called me and said, your husband has the disease of alcoholism. And I said, pardon? And they said, alcoholism. And we're going to move him into Santa Fe. And I said, oh, no, not my husband. He's not an alcoholic. He only drinks on weekends. He couldn't be an alcoholic. And they said, well, we're going to move him over to Santa Fe. And I said, no, doctor, you're not moving him to Santa Fe. And he said, well, that's really where he belongs, to go into a 28-day program. And I said, no, you're not. And I argued with him and argued with him. And three hours later, I went to the hospital, and he wasn't there. They had moved him to Santa Fe, and I was outraged. I was furious, and I proceeded to sue the hospital. This is... This is a large, large hospital in the middle of Temple, Texas. It is called the Mayos of the South. But I, with all my arrogance, was going to sue them. Well, time went on, and he was treated. And the doctor said to me, if you really want to help him, go to Al-Anon. And I said, why me? There's nothing wrong with me. He's the one who's done the drinking. Anyway, I did go to Al-Anon, and after I was in there for a while, I realized that I, too, had problems. I had been very, very angry over his drinking, and I thought if he would just stop drinking, then everything would be wonderful in our lives. And I just couldn't get over the anger. And as I went to Al-Anon, I learned that I had that anger long before I married my alcoholic husband. As a matter of fact, I sometimes wonder if I wasn't born angry. I spent my whole life controlling everything around me. I had been a nun for 20 years and came out of the convent and after about two years met this man whom I thought was just wonderful and he was intelligent and he had all the things going for him. And several years later, when I found out he was an alcoholic, I became so angry and so depressed. How could somebody like me marry an alcoholic? And I was just so upset and as I started to look into myself, I started to blame myself, and then I started to blame God. I thought, God is trying to punish me for having left the convent. And I struggled with this thought and struggled and became more and more depressed and really didn't know what to do, whether to leave him, turn around, go back to the convent. I really didn't know what to do. And one day in Al-Anon, I was very angry, and I started pounding on the table about him and everything else in my life. And I mentioned this. I really couldn't tell anybody about how I really felt about God punishing me. But I mentioned it there, and one of the ladies just looked at me, and she said, Marie, I don't know who your God is, but my God is a very, very loving God. And it just woke me up. And I started to think and to think, and I thought, well, he is a loving God. He has taken care of me all this time. And I started gradually to become more and more peaceful. And after he got out of treatment, I thought, wonderful. Now our life is going to be just perfect. And I was on that proverbial cloud nine. Well, that did not last very long. A month later to the day I walked in the den, And there was His Highness consuming a large bottle of the best champagne. (laughs) 
I really almost died. It was like that lady said last night with the cloud in her stomach. I thought there was a sword in my heart. It all just came to a screeching halt. I just, my heart was pounding. I couldn't get over it. Even he thought there was something radically wrong with me. And there was. And we continued from that time on. I was too proud to get anybody to help me. I did not have a sponsor for almost two years. My husband continued for the next two years, nipping here and there and any place he could get it and always thinking that I didn't know. Of course, I'm not an idiot. It just You don't have to have a Ph.D. to see those eyes and the lies and everything that goes with the disease of alcoholism. But I continued to go to Al-Anon. And finally, one day, we went to IDAA in Santa Fe. And we had to think about whether or not we could go. We were looking at the money, et cetera, et cetera, like all of you do. We went to Santa Fe, and I went to all of the meetings faithfully. But my husband was out fooling around with the vendors on the street and coming in with these beautiful bolo ties and this and that and the other thing, and I became enraged all over again. I thought, we've spent all of this money, and here he is out looking at the vendors and looking at everything that he can pick up here and all these beautiful bolo ties. And I was so upset, and finally I burst out crying. And the lovely group of women at Al-Anon, and some of you are here right now, just looked at me with, with such pity and said, Do you have a sponsor? And I said, no, I don't. And then one woman just couldn't hold it in, and she said, if you don't have a sponsor, then you deserve to be suffering. (laughs) And, you know, I have loved her to this day. I looked for her. She's not here. I looked around for her. She was a big lady, and, of course, I'm kind of short. And she followed me out into the ladies' room. And, you know, I just... I just looked at her, and she said, I need to talk to you. And so I'm looking up like a little kid, and I listened to everything she said, and she begged me to get a sponsor when I went home. Well, when I got back to Temple, I looked around for the toughest old gal I could find in Temple, Texas, (laughs) and I found a real tough one, and she was a minister's wife, much older than I, but she was tough, and I knew by that time, I had done enough self-introspection that I knew that I needed somebody who I could not manipulate. And I could not manipulate this old girl. She practically knew what I was going to say before I said it. And I called her many times a day. She begged me not to fight with my husband. I was constantly fighting. Of course, I'm a great debater, and I was willing to take him out at any time. I was running, doing his inventory. I was telling him which meetings to go to. Even though he was nipping here and there, I was manipulating him to get to go to meetings. So I listened to her, and gradually I got better and better, and my peace returned. And it wasn't until I really let go of my spouse that things started to happen in our lives. Miracles really started to happen. Once I made up my mind that I was going to accept this, I was going to accept my situation in life as it was, and I was going to accept my spouse as he was. Having been Catholic, of course, I really didn't think that I had the option of divorce. I now know today I got lots of options, and that's one of them. But I have chosen. <laughs> but I have chosen to stay because it has all turned out wonderfully for me. 
but I had to accept. You taught me that acceptance is not approval. I thought if I accepted him and accepted everything in my life, I really had to approve. And I now know acceptance is not approval. Acceptance is not tolerating. It's not just tolerating. It's much more than that. Acceptance, according to Carl Sandburg, is calm appraisal of reality. Calm appraisal of reality. I look around at what is and what I can do about it, if anything. If nothing, I just let it go. I've learned that it is still deeper level of acceptance brings us to the topic of suffering. I now can thank God for suffering. I can thank God for whatever is happening in my life. I no longer just accept, but I am truly grateful. I am truly grateful for the suffering of having been married to an alcoholic. I am truly grateful for the suffering that many things in my career have brought me. I'm truly grateful at this point for everything in my life. I have a friend who says he only has one problem with his higher power, and that is thinking that his higher power is him. And he's got a sign on his refrigerator door that says, Basic Principles of Spirituality. Number one, there is a God. Number two, you ain't him. (laughs) And I just love that. And I think about it many times. Because indeed, when I thought about God at times, I thought I was she too. I also thank God for the seemingly bad things in my life. Because in the past, he has always brought good out of my suffering. A multitude of theories have been purported as to why we suffer. But I like the one best of all that St. Augustine gave us. He says, St. Augustine says, belief in God is total goodness. His belief that God is total goodness, once I got that in my mind, that God is totally good, that he cannot send me anything bad, that he loves me more than I can love anyone else, And he only wants what's absolutely best for me. I've learned from you that suffering is a matter of choices. And you taught me that I must not say, why me? I must not put God in a corner and say, God, why me? I must say, God, why not me? What am I to learn from this particular thing in my life. I must learn not to waste pain. I've wasted a lot of pain. Now I'm very much aware of the importance of acknowledging the pain, feeling the pain, and walking through the pain. Pain is not wasted if it brings me closer to God. I've learned, too, that you people are the channels. You are the only channels that I have, but I must always remember that God is really the source.
You taught me that the first three steps are surrender steps. The first one I acknowledge that when I run my life, it's chaotic. And the second step, if I turn things over to a power greater than myself, there's great hope for me. And then the third step, I just better let God take over. One of the big areas of difficulty for me was that of surrender. I had a lot of difficulty just trying to surrender. I disliked the very thought of surrender. But you taught me that surrender was to win. I argued with my sponsor about this for a long time. And I said, I've been fighting all of my life, and that's why I was so successful in my career. I would never have gotten my doctorate if I didn't fight. You always have to fight to get a doctorate. Those of you who have doctorates know that. Your committee's against you. It seems like everybody's against you. They don't want to flood the market with PhDs. So I argued that I fought, and I fought for everything in my life, and that's why I'm who I am. She didn't buy it. She was too smart. She said, you've been fighting Bob all these years, and have you won? (laughs) She got me there. I had to admit, I had not won. She said, you've been fighting. You've done everything that you can. Why don't you try the Al-Anon way now? Why don't you try to surrender? Surrender is trusting as well as believing. Surrender, by definition, is giving up attachment to results. Giving up attachment to results. When we surrender to God, we let go of our attachment to how things turn out on the outside and turn our attention to how things turn out on the inside. Step number two. Came to believe in a power greater than than myself that can restore me to sanity. I had a lot of trouble with the word sanity. I argued with my sponsor that I wasn't insane. He was. And she very nicely explained to me that very few people are legally insane. And then she explained that the word sanity comes from the Latin word sanus, which means whole, healthy. And could I not admit that I was not whole, that I was not healthy, that I was fragmented? And indeed, I could accept that I was fragmented. Came to believe. Came, that was my initial hurdle. I came to meetings. I went to meetings when I didn't feel like going to meetings, which was most of the time. I didn't like the people in them. I didn't think they were intellectual enough. There weren't any doctors in the program. There were only people who were barely high school graduates in Temple, Texas. Those who really belonged, the spouses of physicians, weren't there. Because in our town, 
Everybody is afraid of anonymity. Many physicians have lost their jobs in our town because they admitted that they were alcoholics. If there is anyone suffering in our town who happens to be a physician, he goes 68 miles away to attend a meeting because you can't do it very comfortably in Temple, Texas, sadly to say. We're working on it, but we're not getting very far. So I came to meetings. I continue to go to meetings. Came to believe. Believe is really trust. But believe and trust are not synonymous words. I believe that there are some persons who hold political jobs in our society. And they have a lot of power over me. I believe that. But I don't necessarily trust them. So there is a difference between trust and believe. Came to. Most of us came into this program spiritually bankrupt. I was a very religious person when I came into this program. I went to Mass every day. I did all of the appropriate things as far as religion was concerned. But I was not a spiritual person. My spirituality came back. And when it came back, it was like having the feeling return to a frozen limb. It was painful, and I thawed out in the love and acceptance of the Al-Anon program. I came to believe. No matter what our religious training is, we all have opportunities to understand God in our own way. Step three is the last of the surrender steps, where we turn our lives and our will over to God. I really didn't have much trouble turning my life over to God, because somehow that said to me, it sort of promised me protection and guidance if I turned my life over. But to turn my will over was something entirely different. I had a lot of trouble. Why did I have trouble? I was afraid that if I turned my will over to God, then he would take away the good things I had in my life and send me bad things. And I had a lot of trouble with this. It took me years to really be able to say, God, I'm yours, and I turn my life over to you. I guess my God wasn't really big enough. As J.B. Phillips says, our God is too small if we cannot entrust our wills to him. Our God is too small if we cannot entrust our wills to him. When my surrender is done willingly, power is engendered and miracles happen. And many miracles have happened in my life. My spouse has found his way. He has become a beautiful example of a spiritual man. And to me, that is one of the greatest miracles in our life. We are now both on the path seeking serenity 
seeking peace and always looking to God. I've learned that surrender is joyous acceptance of God's will. And I remind myself of that many times a day. Joyous acceptance to God's will. And where am I today? Today I'm a lot happier than I've ever been in my life. I love my life at the present time. I retired less than a year ago. When I was retired, I was just, I I struggled with the idea of retiring. I guess I thought I was just too important. I thought the university couldn't get along without me. I thought nobody could get along without me, and nobody would know what programs to take if I wasn't there to counsel and guide them. But I had the opportunity of getting out on a buyout, and I grabbed it. (laughs) I couldn't take it fast enough. At first, I was afraid I was going to be bored, but I wasn't bored at all. I had time to read. I had time to spend with my God. It was wonderful. And then two months after I retired, I went in for a physical, and lo and behold, the whole thing opened up again. I was diagnosed with nephrotic kidneys with only 39% functioning kidneys, and I was devastated. And the anger all came back again, and I was mad at God, and I was mad at everybody, and I was so angry at the dietician because she told me I had to go on this rigid diet. And believe me, it was rigid. Low protein, low fat, low sodium, low potassium, low phosphorus, no coffee, no Cokes, no ice cream, no yogurt. And I screamed at her, well, what is it that I can have? And I I just took it all out on her, and the poor lady was just doing her job. And I learned later, and of course I had to make amends to her, and I learned later that it isn't that bad. I still have many miracles in my life. I have the miracle of the operating of my body. I have the miracle of all the love of all of you people. I have the miracle of a wonderful spouse. I have the miracle of wonderful transportation. I have miracles all over, and this really isn't too bad. And with the help of all of you, I was able to get over this. It took me about two weeks to work through the anger, but I was able to get over it. And today, I'm able to to accept that fact. In fact, there are times when I'm really grateful. I just say my serenity prayer before every meal because I know half of what's there I can't eat. But I just say my serenity prayer, and I always have friends around that I can discuss it with. And with the help of God, I have been able to stick to this diet and to watch every single thing that I put in my mouth. And it's not too bad. And at this point in my life, I can say, God, thank you for my disease. You know, being retired and being able to sleep in the morning, I probably would have been a great big fat slob by now if I was able to eat what I wanted and do what I want so I have to be grateful for the fact that I have to watch everything that I I put in my mouth today I make a priority of getting my meditation in the first thing in the morning I used to do it later on in the day I don't do that anymore before I get out of bed in the morning I say the first three steps and that helps me to surrender the day Many times I have to surrender every hour as things happen during the day. 
But if I start my day out, I have found that the day goes much, much better. If I don't have that hour of meditation in the morning, I seem to be looking for that hour as I go through the day. So at this point in my life, I can thank God for everything in my life, thank him for the miracles, thank him for the love, and I'm especially grateful for the love of all of, the, of you in Al-Anon. I just love seeing the smiling faces. When I feel down or I feel sad, I always know that there's some face out there that I can see smiling and that that person is always there for me. And I now know that if I feel burdened at all over anything in my life, I can always call one of you, and I really do. Sometimes I make four or five calls a day. Rather than getting into an argument with my husband, I just call one of you. So I have indeed surrendered, but it has taken me many years to be able to do this. And I would like to end now with the third step prayer. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Thank you and God bless you. Thank you, Marie. We will now hear about steps four and five from Jackie S. of Florida. Good morning. I'm Jackie, a member of Al-Anon, as you gather. Well, that's a hard act to follow, you have to admit. But, Marie, I thank you so much. And for one thing, for many, many years when I was in... Catholic school when I was very young, I felt I had a calling to be a nun. And I ignored the following, I mean the calling. And then therefore I kind of thought God was punishing me for many years because I didn't become a nun. (laughs) So now I'm relieved. It's taken all these years and he doesn't really care. Well, I'm going to talk about four and five, and um, it's amazing that I can talk about that because I never would imagine that I'd be talking about four and five. Um, I just thought of something, though, as I was sitting there about four and how I felt before I actually started it, and it was like something I heard about the caterpillar when he thinks, the caterpillar thinks, what the, cal- what the caterpillar ca- thinks is the end of the world, God sees as a butterfly. And that's kind of how I felt when I started four and how I felt at the end of five. I felt like a butterfly. Um, as you know, the fourth step says, made a searching, fearless, and moral inventory. And the word that I never heard really was of ourselves. It should have been myself. Um, I've been in the program for quite a few years, but when I first came in, it was because of 
of my husband came back from treatment and he was so happy and I had not gone into any Al-Anon meetings while he was gone or anything because I just was um, just too busy really and when he came back he asked me to go he was so happy and everything and I found out that this was the way that I could get even that I would say no just no thank you you know I don't want anything to do with anything that you're doing and uh, you know it worked for a little while but then one day I got to my meeting and as I did all the things I was supposed to do I was doing one two and three um, I was gaining some spiritual power I didn't realize it but they are empowering steps one two and three and um, I was feeling pretty good and about a year or so after going to meetings and gaining some spiritual power I started to think that the meetings were getting like a little too long um, I thought I was starting to feel like why do they pass the basket so fast when people are talking like a 20 minutes after the hour you know I was thinking people were not sticking to the topic um, I was thinking that there were too many announcements at the beginning and the end. I was thinking, I was actually timing the meetings for like getting smaller and I'm thinking I drove all the way over here and I know when she starts talking and talking about these crazy announcements in the, in another part of the state, you know, it's taken up time, time to talk, you know, to get into these big problems we all have, especially me. So, um, I did have a sponsor. I never talked to her much, but, you know, I'd sit next to her at the meetings. And um, she said, um, she said, I think your free ride is ending. And I went, what? And she said, yeah, I think your uh, free ride is about over. She said, you know, the first three you do in your head. And she said, and, you know, I can't get into your head to see what's happening, but I think that, you know, it's uh, time to do something about yourself. Well, that that really got on my nerves, you know, but I kind of went back. She said, so I started thinking, you know, there's been no real change. I'm just going to meetings. Oh, I went to meeting every week. And I really, there was no change. You would think there was a change because I learned to talk the talk. I learned all those slogans. I knew every topic. I would think of something very witty to come up with and I had a lot of feeling you know but um, I wasn't walking the walk I would come out after a meeting where I would share a meeting and I would, it was a, it would be a good meeting I'd get into my car and I would feel awful I felt yuck you know something is missing everyone was coming up to me afterward and we're talking and everything but there was no feeling that I had really been truthful I mean I've been truthful in talking but I know that after I left that meeting, I didn't do anything. I just waited for the next meeting. And if I was asked to chair, then of course I'd get ready. But otherwise, I'd just show up and just listen. And that's it. And I would absorb things, but um, there was no change. There was no walking. There was no walking at all. I was just doing a, a lot of talk. So I decided the reason I wasn't doing my fourth step is because I wanted it to be perfect. And I wanted it to do it once, and then that was going to be it. 
And then I could say I was a member of the group and all this kind of stuff. And so I started procrastinating because I just didn't feel like I could do a really good step and it was going to take a long time. I was so busy all the time. And so anyway, the first time I did it, um, I can't even remember what I said, what I did. And in fact, I was talking to my husband this morning and I can't even remember who I told it to, you know. <laughs> and it was another one of those things where, you know, of course, I didn't get anything from it. But the thing that I can tell you from my own experience is thank God I did that because when I went to do it again, I didn't worry about it being perfect. It was like, because I'd already done it once, and it was like, you know, like that ad, just do it. And it didn't matter that it wasn't perfect or that I didn't even remember anything. The point is that I had done it. And now, when I had a real sponsor, one that I talked to and that knew me, she said, you've got to take pen to paper. This is something that has to have a little discipline in it. Uh, And I always thought I was very disciplined because I was running everything all my life. And... But I was never disciplined with me. I was disciplined in getting other people motivated and getting things done. But I'm still not real disciplined with my... I'm so... I'm really good to myself. I say that I'm really good to myself, but I realize that's not being real good to myself as I just said that. But I... I, You know, this is how we learn. Anyway, there's many ways people do the fourth step. And, you know, there's the Blue Book for Progress that Al-Anon through the 12 and 12, and um, I guess there's just a lot of different ways, but the way I chose was to get a legal pad out and just start writing from my earliest memories, and I did my, kind of like my life story, and the amazing thing was that I had kind of a different childhood than most people, and, and a different kind of, you know, we all have our own, have our own storyboard, you know, And mine was really something that I'd never, I just lived it and never really like got it in order. I thought I had one of the worst childhoods and worst young adult lives in the world. And after I did my story, I realized I had a very nice childhood. And that was worth the price of admission right there. Because if I had died and never done an inventory on myself or looked at my life, I would have missed my life. I would have died thinking I would have never seen the end of the story. You know, I mean, like I would never, never have known that my life was not so bad. As I started, I wrote this whole thing out. It was like, oh, it was quite a few pages long. And I had the biggest problem after I wrote it out on this big legal pad was hiding it every night. Because (laughs) if my children or my husband found this pad and it was like this big legal pad, I would have to leave town. I, in fact, we went on vacation for like a, a little weekend, and I hid this in between the mattress, and then I just, I thought, God, please get me home, okay, because, you know, something happened and someone had to read that. It would just be awful. But anyway, after I wrote it all, I had to go back. It was really great because after I, re- I wrote it, I went back and I found out what was always bothering me. I wanted to see if there was a, a some kind of a thing, that, a kind of a nature of what I was, if I had a nature there. I didn't even think I had one. What is bothering me? What are, what are my quests? 
Then I thought, how can I even pray the third step prayer like Marie just said to us? How could I offer myself to God when I didn't know who or what I was? And I've been offering myself for a year in the program, and I'm, I'm offering God something that I don't know what I'm even offering him. How could I ask God to take all the good and the bad if I didn't know all the good and the bad? The third step made me kind of fearless because I knew that if I, if I really did this and offered God myself from this moment on, I'd know what I was offering him. And I thought, that's kind of being pretty fair, fair to my higher power. I didn't dwell on the things that bothered me. And I made my assets and liabilities. I circled them in each different colors. You know, you can do anything you want. So I did. And um, it was amazing that I had a lot of liabilities, a lot more than I thought. And I did have a good, good number of assets also. And I outlined my character defects. I didn't call them faults. That was too good for me. I have character defects. And I don't like to put any fancy name because I'll start fooling myself that I am just have some faults. And faults just... I had big character defects. And I saw how they manifested themselves. I went over the seven capital defects, pride, anger, lust, anger, gluttony, and sloth. I put in there what makes me uncomfortable. I was always uncomfortable, but I never knew why I was uncomfortable. In the big book, it says, instincts on the rampage, balk at inspection. And boy, did I balk when I started inspecting myself. I got into justification, and I was just miserable. I was so uncomfortable, I didn't know what I was going to do. I got very specific, and I realized that I was three different people. There was a, in the 50s, when I was growing up, there was a, a TV program that I used to love to watch. It's called I Led Three Lives. And it was this man, and he was a spy. And he was different at work, he was different at home, and he was different in social situations, and that was me. I realized that I was really different. I was different, I'm a nurse. I was very different in the hospital, I was very different at home, and I was different at social events. And sometimes I'd become a work person at home, and I wouldn't know what, I was like, I would get myself all mixed up in things that I was doing. And I realized that's kind of a hard way to go, to be three people, trying to be, it's really kind of, I was being really kind of dishonest with myself. I wanted to be one person. I wanted to just be what you see is what you get type of person. I realized that, of course, I was always trying to be in control. And when I was very young, and my story came out, that my relatives, I was raised by my grandmother, and my grandmother started calling me Miss Full Charge when I was about five. And I just thought this was the biggest compliment in the world. <laughs> and I still kind of do. It's a sick part of me. would love to take that back, you know. But I remember I was, anything anyone asked me to do, I was just so proud of myself that they would think that I could just take charge of things, you know. And I realized how emotionally immature 
emotionally immature it is to try to control people, try to manipulate. See, I think control is a nice word. Manipulate is really what I do when I try to control. And I realize now that by trying to take control, I'm not giving others the dignity to live their own life, as al says. But it's just so emotionally immature. And I realized I learned how to do this at a very young age, and I never grew from that point on. And I found out how I can get things. And like I say, I became fearless and tried to be thorough because I had some recovery by doing one, two, and three. I could search my character and find out my nature. There are, there just were natures, nature of why I did things. What was I getting from it? Um, I did not try to waste time on others, even though in my life story, all the characters were in there and how I related to them. But I didn't waste time about them. I feel that this inventory was about me. And it was just interesting to see how I would relate to all the different people in my life. And just from writing this life story, I had tangible evidence that now I was a member of this program, that I was committed to a program because I had done something. I had done something I didn't want to do, and that is something that I just don't do. I always do everything I want to do. If I have a choice, and I always have a choice now that I learned that now and on, I will always do what I want to do. I will always get my needs met. But this is something I didn't want to do. But like I say, now I had the evidence that I wanted to live the principles of the program, which are honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. I found out who I am. I found out what I am. And I found out something else that has been worth the price of admission to this program. I found out that I lived all my life in the problem and not the solution. So, after I did this, the biggest motivating factor to get on with the fifth step was to hide the evidence. And I really wanted to get rid of this legal pad. (laughs) It was like this monkey on my back. I'd be somewhere and I'd be driving and I would think, God, if I get in an accident, you know. And it was, so the minute I finished it, I knew what I was going to do. I was going to dump it and then I was going to tear it up. And then what I did do at the end, after I tore it up, I took some parts to one garbage can and another to another garbage can. See, you can relate, right? (laughs) I didn't want anyone getting those pieces and putting them together. No one ever will either. (laughs) Anyway, so um, I had a wonderful sponsor. And um, so we're on to the fifth step. And the fifth step says, admitted to God, to ourselves, to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. So now it was time to stop living with how I lived. I admitted to God. This is how I really am. This is me. Because I've heard, I've heard myself say, and I've heard other people say, that wasn't me. That was me and drugs. That was me and being stupid. 
that was me being startled. But you know what? That was me. It was always me. It was, if it was me being the biggest jerk, the biggest liar, the biggest whatever, that was me. And I couldn't ignore that person and put her to the side. She had, to, she had her place. And now I knew why she did all those things. And I, I knew why I knew why I ticked like I did. And instead of being mad at myself, I began to understand. I was like first time listening to myself. I have, hard, I have a hard problem listening to other people and to myself. So this really forced me because I didn't want to. I didn't want to be rough on myself. I found out why I acted like I did. It says you're supposed to go to in the twelve and twelve. Go to another human being, as as, a, as opposed to a mutant, I guess. Or <laughs> anyway. I chose my sponsor because I wanted someone who was familiar with the program. I didn't want to go to someone who wasn't in the program and I could gloss things over. Just like I didn't want to go to a priest. First of all, he'd be you know, shocked because I haven't been in church in so long. But anyway, um, <laughs> anyway, I wanted to go to someone who knew me and could keep me looking right at her. And so she was very familiar with the program. She'd done the fifth, fourth and fifth many times and she used to run the steps. It said in the 12 and 12 that we who don't take this step don't really clean house, that we hold back. And my sponsor told me, you will forever live on the crumbs of the program. And I realized through doing my life story so late in life that I had lived on the crumbs of my life. I had a great life. There was this part of me thinking, hey, you got gypped, you know. I wanted to have a life like someone else or like Ozzy and Harriet or whatever, you know. And I lived on the crumbs. I was given a beautiful life. But until I came to this program and wrote this, I, didn't, I, was, I was thinking I, did, I was just had a bad, okay, I'll take my hand. It wasn't that good, you know. Now I know I have fabulous hands. And I, when she said that, you live on the crumbs of the program, I got very, it's like, the sting of reproach is the truth in it. That really bothered me, to think that every time she looked at me, she'd be thinking that I'm, I'm living on the crumbs, because, and it was true. <laughs> you know? Who cares if it's true? I didn't want her to think that I was living on the crumbs of the program. Anyway, I had my legal pad, put it under the seat of my car, drove over to her house, and she said, I said, hey, are you sure no one's going to be coming in, you know, like your husband or anything? And she goes, no, no, he's at work. And she said, and the phone is on the answering thing and everything. And I, the shades were up and everything. And I'm looking around. And so uh, she gives me this really nice chair to sit down. And I thought, ooh, she's just going to hate me when she hears this story, you know. But I knew by then that I had admitted to God she said to me, did you admit this all to God? She took my legal pad. And um, she said, did you, did you admit all this? There were pages. And I said, yes, I did. And I did. That was truth. I admitted it all to him. And she said, and you admitted it all to yourself, right? I said, yes, I did. And so she gave it back to me. And I said, aren't you going to look it over? She said, no. She said, you can use it as a guide. You know, and we'll talk and I'll listen. So um, I started talking, didn't refer to it at all. 
And as I talked, I had this feeling of belonging to the human race. I just felt almost like one of those Fellini movies where you're just looking down and it's like all these weird things are happening. But I was talking, and all I can tell you is the feeling was that I was part of the human race and I belonged right where I was sitting. The weight was just lifting. I was carrying around these big bags, these oversized bags of garbage with me wherever I would go. And I realized that part of my problem was when I would get feeling really good, I would dig into that bag because I always had it with me. And every time I'd feel good, I'd make myself feel bad because I had that with me and that was a compulsion to do that. Felt this garbage bag leaving me. I faced up that I had made my relationships defective. The character defects were mine and nobody else's. All those relationships that I was in, and if they weren't right, it was me. It was not you. I had a sense that I was one person. It was really great to honestly represent myself to somebody. And I found out it was really easy. It was a spiritual experience. And I still say one, two, and three gave me the power to do it. On review of my character defects, I could relate always to a habit. I was just one big habit. It was just like get up, press the button, and I would go. I just was so, and still am, I just get into, like they say, once it's a habit, twice it's an addiction. You know, I just do do it fast. It was the way I thought, the way I acted, and the way I spoke. That was my nature. And it was just crystal clear to me. It was essential to experience the feeling of surrender of my will. Then I could prepare myself for unquestioning acceptance of God's guidance in the days and years to come. Because self-exam, meditation, and prayer separately can, can bring me a lot of benefits and relief, and they have. But when they were logically followed, as in four and five, it, was, it has become an unshakable foundation for, for living. After the fifth step, I realized that now I can start living in the solution. I didn't know how to. And it's so comforting to just put myself into the solution. And after she, we finished the fifth, she said to me, How would you like to have some lunch? And I was just so amazed that she, this woman, after hearing all that I had to tell her, would want to break bread with me that I just start crying and she came over and she gave me a hug and um, I didn't feel like eating then I still a major people pleaser which I won't get into now and I said yes we'll have lunch but it was the most wonderful lunch and she just she looked at me and I looked at her she probably always looked at me the way she was looking but I was looking at her now and I was feeling my own love of myself come back to me because I had been honest. I've been honest with God, with myself, and with another human being. And I always have that now to go back to. I know that I've done it, and I know I can do it. And like I say, it's just worth the price of admission to this wonderful, wonderful club. Thank you very much.
Thank you, Jackie. Um, well, now, um, oh, if you do want a memo pads, they, there are some back by the water if you want to have make notes or whatnot. Um, we'll now go on to steps six and seven with Joan M. from New Jersey. Good morning, everyone. My name is Joan Markham. I'm from Tenafly, New Jersey, just an hour away from here. And it's just been a real pleasure for us to be the host state. And this has been a really wonderful IDAA meeting for me. When Mary asked if I would partake in some of the step discussion, I said yes, because I was taught very early on by some tough Allen honors that when you're asked to do something for the program, you shouldn't refuse because it, it will help you in the long run. So I said yes. Um, and it wasn't until later on that she was, became specific in what she wanted me to talk about. And it just so happens that in my own program, I happen to be um, really doing a lot of work on steps six and seven. So it was a, a double benefit for me. Um, it kind of accelerated some of the work that I was doing. And I've been thinking about this for a long time. Before 1987, when my husband Gene and I came into recovery, we looked pretty good. With just a couple of little things where we were a little rough around the edges, like... Um, I was working about 60 hours a week, and he was working about 80 hours a week. Um, we were being completely, uh, not completely, we were being neglectful of the one child we had. We were uh, coping by the better living through chemistry route. Um, of our, we were coping with our stress by that, that route. And, um, during the day, um, Valium uh, was my friend, and uh, caffeine was my friend, and in the evening, um, martinis were my friend, and when my husband, um, who used to black out after dinner every night, went to bed, then my real um, drug of choice, which is food, became my friend. And um, I had I had friends. No, I had acquaintances who I thought were friends. I only picked people who um, needed me so that I could feel very important. I didn't have any spiritual link at all, and I thought that when I was a, a young adult and I had um, left the church, um, I thought that I was still very cool in that regard, that I didn't need anything like that. So there, there was nothing really, you know, nothing wrong with our lives. Looked pretty good. And uh, all of a sudden, um, and that's not even talking about my husband's addiction, but that's not where I, why I'm here today. Um, when... Jean got into treatment. 
I got into Al-Anon and I had attended the family week at his rehab and they really helped me to get my head on straight. It took me a while as a newcomer to begin to understand that the backbone of this program are the steps. And that was okay because when I first came in, I needed to have people just love me. I needed to be able to dump. I needed to be able to cry. I needed to be able to learn how to laugh a little bit. But I think as Jackie said, um, the free ride is over. And there did come a point in time when I recognized that I, I couldn't just stay, I couldn't just keep coming to meetings and not do the work and just talk the talk. Before I even start to talk about steps six and seven, it's essential for me to say that for me, I needed to do steps one, two, three, four, and five. I used to look at step six and say, oh yeah, wouldn't it be nice to get rid of all my faults, all my defects of character. But without doing, you know, without admitting that I was powerless over alcohol and people, places, and things, without coming to believe that somebody greater than Joan was going to be restoring me to, to some kind of sanity, and without making that decision to surrender and turn my will over to the God of my understanding, and then without doing the fourth step inventory and then turning it over, how could I come to step six, which is we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character? So I couldn't really do that in any real meaningful way for me until I had done the previous steps. My history and experience with Al-Anon um, was with some tough old timers. Um, I don't know how I even survived some of those first meetings. It was like, get in here, shut up, and listen, you know. And But, you know, I needed that then. Um, I found out that I had to stop struggling to begin to work steps six and seven because at first I found myself, um, if I was perfect, I, all I did in step four was discover my perfectionism. And so time, time, more time, Patience, patience, more patience, and realizing that it's a process, it's a process, it's a process. Um, you know, I, I needed to hear that over and over again. And what I'd like to do now is just read one of the um, Courage to Change readings about Step 6. I read all the Courage, I read all the Step 6 and 7 readings from all my meditation books as well as all of my uh, Step books, and this is one of them that I, is my most favorite. It's from November 14th. It says, Step 6 talks about becoming entirely ready to have God remove all my defects of character. This readiness rarely appears to me in a sudden, blinding flash of enlightenment. Instead, as I struggle to make progress in a positive direction, I become ready a little at a time. 
An important part of my step, six-step work is practicing gratitude. The more I give thanks for my life as it is, the more I can accept the healing that allows me to grow and change. By recognizing and cultivating my abilities, I am increasingly willing to let go of my defects. This step is a lesson in patience, but as I see my life opening up before me in new directions, I do finally become ready to have God remove all my defects of character. Progress, not perfection, applies to my readiness to let go of my defects, as well as to other parts of my Al-Anon program. One day at a time, I make progress in readiness. Step six is my chance to cooperate with God. My goal is to make myself ready to let go of my faults and let God take care of the rest. I read this a long time ago while I was struggling to try to figure out how, how to really work on step six and step seven. And the two things that uh, came up for me were the gratitude of accepting where I am right now. And what that does, well, it does two things. It helps me through the acceptance of that to begin to love myself. And when I start to love myself, I'm able to become willing to let go of the defects that were really coping skills, that were really habits, as Jackie said before, that really got me through, you know, the 60-hour work weeks and the, um, the, the denial system of drinking, drugging, and eating, and uh, the guilt of not parenting. Uh, so all of those defects really kind of got me through. And without learning to love myself, the fear was that I would be an empty shell if I let go of all of those things. And that, although that was an illusion, it sure as hell didn't feel like it. I really believed that if I let go of a lot of those painful things that weren't working for me anymore, I would be empty. Well, it turns out that that's not what happened because the more I let um, acceptance of where I was today come in, the more I got to see that I actually had a lot of assets. You know, in this program, we don't ask God to add anything, but rather just to take away what we don't need. Each defect that each defect is hiding an asset. And as I let go of some of those, just the idea of the defect, assets start to pop up. And you know, it sort of makes me be um, more of a participant in my own life. It sort of gives me the choices that I never know that never knew that I, I had. Something else about steps six and seven comes to my mind. Everything that I need to live the kind of life I want to live is already in place. Everything. Remember in step two it says that I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me? There must have been something there. If restoration is the process, sort of like um, I love um, 
old oil paintings and they need to be restored. You know, the years of dirt and grime and even people fudging stuff over them. But what happens when a painting is restored is that the original piece of art comes through. And that's a good way for me to kind of look at myself. It really, you know, well, if I can take, uh, you know, a piece of canvas and, and have it cleaned and fixed and then love it for its beauty, the original beauty, maybe I can look at myself that way. Step seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Wow. Humbly. I spent a lot of time feeling humiliated by a lot of my behavior, and it took me a long time to see the difference between being humiliated and learning to become humble. You know, I can do the footwork with these steps, but I only have a limited power, and this is where the humility comes in. Humility is said to be perpetual quietness of heart. It means that I do my part and trust God to take care of the rest. And although I may not know how my help will come, I can remain serene because all I really have to do is ask my higher power for healing. Some of the areas in my life where I have found that as I become more accepting and loving of myself, uh, and things have improved. And I thought that um, I always like to have examples of, of what people have done and how it's helped, you know, what, what the results might be. Um, with work, I changed careers and I now work part-time. That was very, very difficult. Um, I went through um, a, a very severe depression um, trying to just decide what I wanted to do um, and to get me away from that workaholic behavior. In my relationship with my husband, um, you know, I think that uh, steps six and seven point out that I need to take the judge out of my vocabulary and when I'm judging me, then I judge you, and, and in particular, I judge my husband. So taking that away has opened me to becoming more gentle. Gentleness wasn't a word in my vocabulary, and you know it was through the steps, and six and seven in particular, that really started to soften me and, and make me a more gentle person. And when I'm gentle, I can let go of the struggle, and when I let go of the struggle, I can become more vulnerable, and when I become more vulnerable, I can let other people in, and when I can let other people in, I can let myself share with them. And so magically, uh, although it's not magically, because uh, it, takes, it takes the footwork, but it, it starts to happen, and little by little, all of a sudden, um, our relationship really started to get better. Um, one of the most exciting areas um, of delight for me was when I went back to school um, to uh, embark on my new career. 
um, I found out, I used to believe that I didn't have um, a creative bone in my body. I really thought that um, I, I just didn't. And as a byproduct, um, we used to do a lot of um, role playing. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a drug and alcohol counselor now. And so part of the role playing in order to help our, our patients, um, I got in there and really started to act. And um, they awarded me at the end of the, uh, um, of the course, um, you know, the, the best actress uh, award. And, uh, and, and people in my area call upon me from all different treatment centers, you know, come on down, let's, you know, do your thing. And, um, you know, maybe someday I can think about getting into some of the, uh, the little theater companies. You never know. You know, even running around the room yesterday when Catherine was speaking, I was throwing out the... The, uh, the little red noses that we all wore. Um, now, that didn't take much creative talent, but that was something that I just wouldn't ever do. I wouldn't let myself go like that. Um, and so now, because I'm just not so hung up on being this bad person and I'm accepting where I am today, a lot of that, a lot of what's in here, a lot of, what's, a lot of that work of art, you know, is, is being restored. Um, I have a I have a best friend. Her name is Eileen, and I met her on the night of my first and her first Al-Anon meeting. And she and I just we knew within weeks of that meeting that we were soulmates. And we made a decision to use the twelve steps to foster. Um, a friendship that neither of us had ever had based on love and trust and acceptance and boundary setting and spirituality and it was like a real tall order but we went at it with a lot of um, vim and vigor and uh, by the way working on that relationship because you know she and I had nothing no vested interest because we had no history so whatever we did you know it was well, so if it fails, it fails. But because of that relationship, that spilled back into my relationship with my husband and my mother and my son and, and a lot of other people. Anyway, um, it really, really worked. And she and I have something very, very special. And the job-related transfer came about. And my dear friend Eileen is moving to Dallas, Texas. And I had no idea. When I first heard it, you know, I said, well, well, that's too bad. I'm really sorry. And we've had a couple of months to go through this before the actual move, and they're moving next week. I can't tell you the sadness, the grief, the pain. And at first, you know, I became very angry, and I said, you know, I did all the right things so that I could have a friend right here with me in my town for life. We were going to grow old together, you know, and our uh, husbands became close, and so we were a good foursome. And now that I've done all these things and really spilled my guts and become extremely close to this person, she's being taken away. I haven't come to the acceptance of that yet. That's going to take time because that's the end process of, of the end stage of the, of the grieving process. 
Um, and I know she's alive and well, and, you know, she didn't die, and that happens to lots of other people, but this is my friend, and she's being taken away from me. It's because of these steps that I was allowed to become that close, and now I am being given the opportunity to go through the process of losing the friendship as it, as it was, you know, it's going to be different. That's a real gift. You know, that's a real gift. Um, I've already kind of signed up Margaret over there, who's going to speak next, because she's living in the same area that my friend Eileen is moving to. And, uh, you know, that's that little caretaker part of me. I'm, I'm checking places out in Dallas for Eileen. <laughs> well, I'm not going to do it perfectly. I don't want to anymore. I'm not going to do it in a rush. If I die tomorrow, so what? Because I'm working gently with love and to the best of my ability today. One other thing that I did find out that kind of got me into a little bit of trouble this year, and that's where step six and seven are kind of coming around to the rescue. I've been doing a lot of of prayer, a lot of meditation, and a lot of um, soul searching to... Um, develop a more spiritual life. And what happened to me in that regard was that I forgot that I also had to do the footwork instead of just kind of sitting there in my um, yoga position um, with telling my husband, um, if you would do this, you'd feel better, you know, and thinking that if I just kept doing that, that I would be making progress. Well, that's an important piece of my recovery, but I really have to do the practical things. I have to look at myself and ask, what is my commitment to making an improvement in my relationship with my husband? What is my commitment to me to make sure that I'm fulfilling the things I want to do with my work. What is my commitment to my relationship with my friend um, so that I can go through the, the, the next stages of, of the relationship? It wasn't enough, and I got hung up in that, that ethereal kind of you know prayer and meditation and not a lot else. So for me, I, I need to bring myself back down. Um, but I can do it gently and with love, and I think that those are the two things that I really get from steps six and seven, which I never saw in the beginning. So today, when I ask my higher power to remove my shortcomings, I can do it with a peaceful heart. Thank you. Thank you, Joan. Now we will have Margaret H. from Texas take us on to 8 and 9. Hi, I'm Margaret, and I'm a very grateful recovering Al-Anon. Got a nervous. <laughs> I don't like being up here. It was nice sitting down there listening to everybody. I know a lot of people, but it's really different standing up here. Um, I'm talking about step eight and nine. And, of course, you can't do step eight until you've done the steps before. And um, 
there's one thing about step eight that I remember when I first came into the program I was reading all the steps which are back here made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all that is step eight and when I read that I thought I'm going to have no problem with that you know I've been telling people that I'm sorry all my life and of course you know as I kept going to meetings to step meetings which I always put a plug in for step meetings because I think there's the most important meetings that we go to in the area that I live in in Dallas well I live outside of Dallas but I came into Al-Anon in, in Dallas uh, there are so many meetings every day. You can find at least two Al-Anon meetings every day all over the city. Every group has them. That a lot of people nowadays go to a lot of Al-Anon meetings but have never, after even a couple of years, never gone to a step meeting. And so I, I don't know how you can work a program without a step meeting. I know that you can work the program with the traditions, I mean with the uh, slogans for a little while. But for me, I was I was really lucky because at, when I came into Al-Anon in 71, there were only two meetings a week. And the second meeting on Wednesday was a step meeting, so I always went to step meetings. And talking about step eight, <clears throat> when we talk about <clears throat> making a list of all the persons we've been harmed and became willing to make amends to them all, as I kept going to step meetings, I kept people talk, kept talking about... Um, when you have done your fourth step, you should have somewhat of a list of the people that you may need to make amends to. And that was certainly true for myself, too, just like for most everybody that does that. Um, after I got through with my fourth step, it was amazing that I kept adding people to the list. You know, it seems like once all that stuff is out of your head, God puts new things into your head and you keep adding things to your list. So I kept adding new people and I would think of new people that I needed to add to that list. I had a lot of help from my sponsor. I could never have done that without the help of my sponsor. She and I had to discuss everybody that was on that list because like uh, it says in the 12 and 12, when we come to the step of making amends to the amends steps, which by the way are the action steps, in this program because we really do have to take action to do that that uh, when I start thinking of some of the people that I needed to make amends to I became very defensive I did not want to you know I felt like a lot of the people they had done me more harm than I had done them and it was um, I need to refer to my notes here I'm getting too nervous <laughs> um, Yeah, she and I had to have a lot of discussions because one of the things she helped me with was to see what my part in these relationships was. And, of course, that's what the fourth step, I think, is all about, too, is when we do the fourth step. Uh, we had to uh, go almost over every person that I had down on that list, and I had to find out what my part was in that and how I could go about finding these people and trying to make amends. Of course, in the, in the eighth step, it only talks about make, becoming willing to make amends. Um, the list started, of course, with God. God was on the top of my list. I, you know, at first I couldn't figure out why God had to be on my list, but he had to be on that list because I really had sort of ignored God throughout my life until I got into the program. And I just always felt that God had been too busy with everything else. I grew up in Germany. I figured he had been too busy with the war and taking care of us after the war. That he had no time, 
you know, for me, little old me. And then, of course, uh, something happened when I was little. I lost my eye, my left eye, when I was four years old. And I was really mad at God. So I didn't want to have anything to do with him. And uh, when I came into Al-Anon, finding out that I, my whole life had been evolving around alcoholics, I thought, you know, he really doesn't like me. So I had to... Can I have my glass of water? Um, I really had to start a relationship with God once I came to the program and I had a lot of amends to make in that area which of course I started making as I started working my program slowly and uh, you cannot get through all these steps without having some sort of relationship with a higher power which I uh, choose to call God Then the second person on this list was myself, of course. I think I had done more harm to myself than I had done to anybody else. And um, that was really not that hard for me to see, so uh, I could go on. The next people on my list was my family, all the people of my family of origin, especially my parents. I came from a very, very abusive... My father was very, very abusive. When I grew up, he had this habit of... When he couldn't control what we what we what he wanted us to do, then he would just beat us into doing what he wanted us to do. And you know, this was something that I always talk about because when you come from a just like when you come from an alcoholic home, if you come from an abusive home, you have the tendency to deal with things the same way because that's what you learn. And so I had to really do a lot of work on that before God even would allow me to have any children, one child. And I didn't know that for a long time when I first came in the program. I was always so mad at God because he had never allowed me to have children. I really wanted children very badly. When I got out of nursing school, I got into uh, pediatrics because I always loved children. And uh, I think also part of the reason was because I wanted to be nice to kids like I had not had that experience when I grew up. I wanted children to be taken care of and uh, in the proper fashion, in the proper way. But, you know, it was really interesting. I was doing the steps in Dallas one time, and there was another nurse, a friend of mine, in the audience, and she asked me afterwards, she said, have you ever thought of abusing a patient? And I thought that was a very strange question, but it really scared me because do you know that when uh, I was working in the hospital in Berlin, we always said, and of course in Parkland too, well, later on when I worked in Parkland, we had these great big windows in between each room. You always have that in pediatric wards, at least where I have worked. And you know, if it hadn't been for those windows a couple of times, especially in nursing school, when I was tired, I don't know what I would have done. God forbid I would have done that. But I can think of times when I was so frustrated because I couldn't control what was going on that I really, you know, it scared me to think about that. It really did. And I, you know, the only way that I can be okay about that is by admitting that and talking about that. And so, uh, there was no way I could have ever gone back to these hospitals and, you know, talk to anybody, make amends about that. Because that was one of the things I used my sponsor for. All the people that I couldn't go to, I, you know, talked to my sponsor about and I felt that that was okay. Um, oh, in the 12 and 12... I always refer back to the AA 12 and 12. I read the Al-Anon 12 and 12 too, but for years we didn't have the Al-Anon 12 and 12. And the AA 12 and 12 has always been real important to me. It talks about trying to discover where we had been at fault and to make a vigorous attempt to repair the damage we had done, we had done, and not what others had done to us. 
And that was, like I said before, that was really something that I really had to work on because I could always see much more honest, much more openly how, like for instance, especially with my father, what he had done to me, but it was hard to, to see how I needed to make amends to him. And uh, I talk about this in step nine when it came time to make amends to him. It also talks about... Uh, Oh, it also talks about, the, in the 12 and 12, about how we become defensive when it is time to make amends to other people. And I think this all goes together, is trying to see more what their part was instead of trying to see what our part is. And as I kept going on and on, it became easier and easier. Mary Helen, my sponsor, was so wonderful. Well, she was an AA too, but she was so wonderful and gentle with me in pointing out what my problems were in these situations because um, when you grow up with somebody that's very abusive in every way emotionally, physically, sexually, whatever you know, you have a habit of developing coping skills and techniques that aren't always very nice I started to learn how to lie to be deceitful and I started to learn how to take care of myself in these ways and um I know today that that was not healthy, but...